We'd like to give a special thanks to Astro Agency, the executive producers of Space and 60. They provide strategic marketing support exclusively for the space sector. Strategic because their team have all the vast experience working within space companies are setting them up. So they specialize in getting technical messaging and brand positioning just right, as well as having the industry connections to organize podcasts just like this one and their space bar webinars, which we'd highly recommend for new space networking. Check Astro Agency out on social media. They're in all the usual places. So welcome to another episode of Space in 60, where new space happens. Glad to be back. And also my friends, Andrew Polipchuk, our friend from Canada, aka Thruster. Thank you, Clint, for the intro. Good to be back as usual. And I'll pass it over to our good friend, Chad. How are you all doing? Down here in South Carolina today, so watch out. It's been a busy week. What have you guys been up to since the last time we talked? Well, the crashing back of the uh, Chinese rocket has been all over the news. That was pretty interesting to see, get a, a bit broader exposure on on that. This is one I didn't tell you guys about before either, but one of our neighbors uh, the other day started calling out UFOs that she was seeing over the neighborhood. Turns out it was all the Starlink satellites. Have you guys seen those, all the reports that people are thinking they're UFOs, but it's really the reflection of the satellites coming across the, you know, about 20 of them. Every time Chad tells a story, I, I, I'm thinking I'm going to get a story like from Chunk on the Goonies. <laughs> you guys, was this, was this like the time you ate your weight at Godfather's Pizza? I bet to send you guys that article. I mean, it's unbelievable. Like people were calling it out the whole time. And then like somebody else was on one of the like neighborhood posts or something, but they found the article and it's the Starlink constellation that just comes across. And it's about 20 of them. And if you're at the right time and right angle, they kind of flicker, just the light hitting them. And people have been calling them UFOs nonstop. It's been going on like crazy. Feeding the beast. But back to the Goonies, that is classic Americana. Like everybody's got to know the Goonies. Everybody's got to know Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Like there's just, that's one of the slate of movies that you just have to know. It's the truffle shuffle, man. I'm not sure any other space podcast could fit the Goonies into their space podcast. This has got to be the only <laughs> It's going to be Goonies 2. Goonies 2 in space. Speaking of which, Space Camp. I watched Space Camp the other week with our two-month-old, Okan, who would not sleep one night. So the two of us crashed on the couch. We queued up Space Camp. What a classic crazy Joaquin Phoenix, right? Yeah, Joaquin Phoenix before his Joaquin Phoenix. Yeah, that's a that's a classic. You know, I think that our generation probably has the best space movies. Space Camp. We've got a friend that we hope to have on the show very soon. Actually worked in CGI for Starship Troopers. Nice. Now there's another good classic. That's pretty nice. Yeah. That's right when CGI started to take off too. No, it's not. Star Wars. Come on, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> Industrial you Light said, and Magic. The where it wasn't horrible, where it wasn't quite Jurassic Park-ish, but something somewhat believable with an alien in there. Did you even really live the 80s, Chad? Partly. <laughs> <laughs> he was in Alaska. Cut him some slack. 
That's true. I grew up on military bases, so pretty much everything was about five years behind until we got off base. It was all about Iron Eagle and Top Gun for Chad. Don't don't say anything bad about Iron Eagle. It's classic. We have an amazing guest, Cassandra Mercury. Cassandra is working on some projects that I think we're all going to be very interested in. She's worked at several different key places around the country, just doing projects that some of us can never imagine working on. Where are some of the places she worked, Andrew? So she started out, I think, at JPL and then the Hyperloop team. And now she's at a new space startup called Craft Prospect. And she's based out of Scotland, right? She is now. She relocated. Curious to know the story behind that. Yeah, my favorite subject about space is scotch, of course. And maybe she knows a little bit about that. Maybe she doesn't. But at some point, we're going to have to schedule a space tour to Scotland for space scotch. Absolutely. I agree with that. I like that. That's a whole nother show to start right there. Space with Scotch. So today we would like to welcome our guest, Cassandra Mercury. Hi, Cassandra. Thanks for joining us today. Good to be here. And it's yeah. a very parlor looking room behind you. I love it. Yeah, it is absolutely. Amazing. I'm in the new town, new town being 1770s part of Edinburgh. <laughs> it feels like ye old time they have cobblestones out in the shops beneath you know and, and the entire city is just so stupidly beautiful it's just ridiculous so we were all three super interested in hearing about your background and the projects that you've been working on out in the world but as all of our listeners know we really like to hear about the people behind new space the people behind traditional space and those that are really making an impact on space at large and you know, we, we've learned a lot about the projects you've worked on just from your, your public work that you've been doing, but we'd like to hear about all of the really cool projects that you've been doing. I, I noticed you've worked at JPL, you're working with a, a younger company today on the commercial side, and just tell us a little bit about yourself and, and what all you do. I've had quite a varied path, I think. Born and raised in LA, I even went to university at you know USC over in, in downtown LA, so didn't go too far except for one semester where I actually did a semester of study abroad at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. Returned, finished out my degree, and from there went straight to NASA's JPL and was working in the entry, descent, and landing group, primarily because during the interview, I had like this five-minute just rant about how excited I was on parachutes. So they were like, okay, I guess she's are kind of crazy. We'll, we'll take her. <laughs> I did eventually get to work on parachutes. I also worked on the Curiosity rover on those bridles, that whole sky crane descent, which was super exciting. But the, the parachutes portion where we're actually designing new parachutes, new styles of parachutes for the first time since the 70s was my dream come true. And then from there, I decided, you know, let's go try that startup life. And I went over to go work on the Hyperloop and was able to bring over quite a bit of the skills. You know, Hyperloop is supposed to be in a low pressure environment, but it was definitely a different, you know, experience. I was, I think, employee number 21 when I started. And a year and a half later, I believe there was 400 people. It was a very quickly growing company, which was a lot different than what I was used to. And a lot more freedom and not so many checks and balances. 
And so that was all very exciting. But that one semester that I had spent in Edinburgh, Scotland, refused to just consign itself to a memory. And I'd always wanted to go back to Scotland to live. So now I'm in Edinburgh again, living here. And I'm working at a company called Craft Prospect. And this time it's on small satellites and doing something I've never done before, quantum key distribution. So it's getting into some really like exciting cutting edge research and in a different part of space than I've worked in before. We're not going to Mars with this. This is pure Earth-based. How did you end up you know, looking to get into the space industry, did, you know, with JPL in your backyard growing up, is that something that was just always there for you or, or how did you end up taking the pathway into space? When I was a very small child, actually, I think I wanted to be an archeologist for quite a bit. I didn't have any family in STEM, any part of STEM. I, I certainly didn't know at that time that there was such a thing as JPL. What got me into it was Star Trek Voyager. There's <laughs> Lieutenant Belana Torres, and she's the chief engineer, and I wanted to be her. So I, from the first time I saw Voyager, I had wanted to be Belana, and so that's why I went into engineering. That's pretty awesome. Fantastic story. You know, I as a kid, we didn't have GI Joes in our house, but we used to strap parachutes to little Lego men and, and chuck those off the roof. Were you doing anything as as obnoxious as that? <laughs> Uh, I had got gifted a actually a tool set as a kid, and it was total kids tool set. And I thought this was so cool. Boundaries were important. I did try to take apart some appliances, and I was kindly put away to <laughs> stay away from those things. So mine mine would be more hey respect electricity and also our microwave. Nice, nice. That's pretty classic, and that ties right back into the Voyager and Bellana Taurus and <laughs> engineering everything out. That's pretty cool. It's super exciting. It's actually, <laughs> when I was back in LA, uh, one of my colleagues from JPL, she had started this basically kids club where they would teach basic engineering skills and how to get kids to not be afraid of tools because I know it can sound weird, but a lot of people, you know, you give them something to to take apart or to build and they're like, oh, oh, I can't do that. You know, what do I, you know, what if I hurt something? So it was a program that we called Taking Things Apart where we'd have people donate the kind of appliances that they didn't need anymore. And we'd take it either to a school or an after-school thing and get the kids confident with using tools and really reverse engineering. So you're like, okay, if you're looking at this and you need to take this off, where might you hide a screw and, you know, figuring out product design and doing all sorts of that stuff. And we make sure we give those sorts of boundaries. Don't try this at home or else ask your parents so you don't get in trouble like I did as a kid. But yeah, they were always super, super exciting things. We even had one that was uh, toaster cannons, where we had them modify toasters with springs to see who can launch the, their toast the highest, which they would get so intense on that we had to have a high-speed camera capturing each attempt because, or else they would be like, you replays were just constant to, to prove exactly who got the highest toast. I love it. <laughs> that is awesome. See, I, I was the kid with the hammer. And I wouldn't really find the screw. I'd just keep banging on it until it broke or fixed it. I don't know. <laughs> well, maybe it's because you were hitting a screw with a hammer. Oh, <laughs> well, you know, I still have that problem. <laughs> <laughs> 
you went from from there to to JPL. What's the big leap that got you there? I guess this one kind of sounds a little bit weird. So I was at university and um, I was in my fourth year. And I had been already taking some of my master's classes. I had joined this program that USC has called a four plus one. And I was in the computer lab one night and the head of our department came over and he said, JPL is coming and doing on-campus interviews. I'm like, okay. And he's like, ah, you're, you're going to apply. I'm like, well, no, actually I was planning on just going straight through, you know, just want to finish focus on the academics. He's like, no, 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 no. We have a very good online program. You'll finish part-time, you know, with the, with the master's. I was like, I, that's not actually my plan. He's like, I've already signed you up. And then he just walked away. So I already had an interview that he had already signed me up on the on-campus interview. And then that's where I went and spoke to one of the hiring managers. So it wasn't just uh, HR. They always send like their engineers out to really try to get a feel of the people that they're talking to. And I just went on about parachutes and how I really wanted to work on it. Because I think he'd asked me a question like, uh, in five years, what do you want to have seen yourself done? And I just was like, parachutes. <laughs> and apparently, you know, afterwards, you're just like, oh, Cassandra, couldn't you have been normal for like half an hour? Just just half an hour. <laughs> but he was, you know, obviously he liked it. So, you know, went straight from, from there. I got an offer not too long after started right away. And that was actually pure luck because the next year they had a hiring freeze because of the financial crisis. So I would not have gotten in if I had done my original plan. So why did I get to JPL? Because my professor had signed me up and I respected him too much to not show up. And then I got excited about parachutes. So, you know, quite a bit of luck there as well. There you have it. I wish... It's not in Canada where you get JPL showing up at universities for job fairs or anything like that. But I mean, I think we do have like Quantum Canoes Canada, you know, looking for engineers. <laughs> I'd say bringing up the parachutes probably separated you from the pack as well. Definitely something interesting and fun. I'm not, I'm sure they didn't hear that too much. <laughs> you know, like it's, yeah, it was, a, it was an interesting one because it was just like, oh, well, I'll take that very literally in five years. I will have done this, 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 and this. And The great thing about it, though, is he remembered that. And I think it was about four years later that he told my then line manager about it. And I got put onto the project where we got to develop new parachutes. So even it made it made enough of an impression that he remembered and he made sure that I got onto a parachute development program. So that rant saved me. I've I've heard of Stranger Things for sure, but that was that's it's a pretty incredible way to end up where you are today. And I think that one of the most interesting things that we hear through all of the discussions and interviews that we have is that the path to where someone is today is it's always varied. And you know, things that happened along the way to get them to that point many times were never planned. And some of the people that do the most amazing things in the space industry didn't start out on a mission to accomplish those things or something happened earlier in their career that just gave them that opportunity to get there. You know, moving from there, I think you went to uh, Virgin next. Is that right? Yeah. So it's gone through several name changes, but the Hyperloop. Yeah. So now it's Virgin Hyperloop One. Right. 
when I joined, it was Hyperloop Technologies. And then during, while I was there, I went to Hyperloop One. Okay. What was that like? Oh, that was just, it was a completely different environment. Just as an example, at JPL, you're only able to spend, I think it was like 2000 or something without having to get two other quotes for something and having the purchasing department actually buy that. And so they'd have to then go independently get those quotes and then they would have to get the lowest priced one. You know, this is basically, you know, even though JPL is not, JPLers aren't uh, federal employees like all the other NASA centers, they're actually Caltech employees because Caltech runs JPL, but they all run on the same rules that all the other NASA centers do. And, and they do that intentionally to make everything, you know, a more cohesive NASA family. And so, yeah, some of those rules are built into like the contract. And so you want to spend, you know, just a bit above 2000. Well, you have to get three quotes has to go through purchasing. Someone gets assigned for it. They have to go get the quotes and then they have to purchase it. And it's a long process. I'm guessing there are a lot of purchases at JPL that are $1,900. And 99 cents. <laughs> you, wish, you wish you could, but you would, oh no, if you did something like that, if you're trying to like structure basically your purchases, you get in trouble for that. Though, weirdly enough, the thing that I had the most difficulty ever buying at JPL was a little like waiting pool <laughs> because they were like convinced that I was going to put water into it. And then they wanted to know what my plan was because JPL is a super fun site. All of the, you know, many decades of rocket tests there have, have made it not the most ecologically sensitive uh, kind of place. So you, you can't, you know, get water in there and then dump it. But I was like, I'm not using it for that. I had this test where I had basically a million like BB pellets. And I was like, I had to do a flow test on it. And I was like, <laughs> well, how am I supposed to like capture that many? I was like, oh, you just get a little kiddie pool, you know? And, and that was, I think it took me a month and a half to order like a $12 uh, thing off of Amazon. It was, they, did, they didn't want to approve this water um, pool. So anyway, the, from a place with lots of rules to my first week at Hyperloop, I got given a test project. So it was the levitation test rig. So how to design it, get the hardware in. And it was basically to test the full levitation system. So we'd want to be able to test different surfaces and then different methods of actually levitating and what kind of forces you get from there. So how much can you actually lift with that method? So you're like, okay, well, it has to be in a pressurized environment. I mean, depressurized. So it's like about a thousand pascals as we were aiming for. And so I found this old autoclave at some place in Long Beach. And I was like, oh, hey, this is pretty cool. So on the Friday of the first week I was there, I'm looking at it. You know, I'm down Long Beach. I'm like, okay, this is fantastic. You know, it'll just take a little bit of modification because obviously with an autoclave, you know, you pressurize and in a vacuum, you're depressurizing. So there was just a little bit of modification to that we'd have to add there to take the difference in those forces. And I get back to you know, Hyperloop and I go to my boss. I'm like, okay, I, I'm already identified the actual chamber that we'd want to use. It has plenty of space. It has plenty of portholes. We're good. You know, what's the review process to order, to order this? And he just looks at me and he's like, do we need it? Yes. Well, then go order it. I'm like, but like, what's, what's the review process? It's $400,000. And he's like, you know, we hired you to be a competent engineer. Go be competent. 
And then he just like left. I'm like, no, that can't be. That cannot be. I'm going to go talk to finance because they have to be the adults, right? <laughs> finance are full of adults, right? I, I fully believe this. I go to finance and I'm like, yeah, so um, <clears throat> if I have this, you know, $400,000 piece of equipment, how would you go about buying that? I'm like, oh, how do they want to be paid? <laughs> um, so yeah, so that was, that was a culture shock. <laughs> Welcome to New Space. Okay. It was a bizarre (laughs) transition. (laughs) Have you ever wondered how to get your company's latest news in front of a global space sector audience? Then get in touch with Room Space Journal. With a large digital and print audience focusing on space, astronautics, science, and the latest news and developments from the sector, Room Space Journal is a direct route to increasing brand awareness in space. For the latest space news and to download a media pack, visit the website at room.eu.com. So from there, I think with those two companies, what's the what's the coolest thing you've ever worked on at Hyperloop, at JPL? What's the, the absolute most amazing project you've ever been a part of? I don't know if anything is ever going to be able to top up the fact that I have hardware on Mars. You know, like I just, everyone's so like, you can like, you see that bright little red shining star-like, you know, object in the sky and you're like, I have stuff up there. And it's just like that cool factor doesn't really get old. So I, I don't know if anything's ever going to really surpass curiosity. And did you hide your signature anywhere on there? Like, is your, your name, <laughs> your name on Mars? Is there a Sharpie? <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, no, no. Um <laughs> So we were worried at times with how long my hair is, if, you know, basically oh. planetary protection, I'm getting that in trouble. Um, <laughs> okay. So those suits are not made for people with lots of hair. I just got to say like, like, oh yeah, you just tie it up and you're like, oh, I'm just going to bun this. And you're, you're trying to do that. And it's just like, then the hood's like, like completely on top of you. And you're like, okay, this, these are people with short hair who design mm-hmm. these. <laughs> I think the three of us <laughs> all have that problem, don't we? Right? You know, just look it. Just look your hair. Just it's beautiful. Yeah, I, I can't imagine having hardware or having a project on Mars. I mean, I, I can see how nothing nothing could possibly top that. And you know, as you you start to move further into your career, and, and that's what we find with with the guests on our on our podcast, is that they've all done such amazing things and you wonder how you're ever going to to top that, I mean, what comes next? If you, if you feel like you're not sure what can top it, what comes next for you? You know, now really it's about expanding my horizons. I think that's one of the cool things is probably I, you know, I like working on new things. I like being just outside of my comfort zone or sometimes quite far, especially with the job I'm at now because quantum key distribution is a lot of you know, quantum physics in it. And you're just like, yeah, you know, that wasn't really what I did, you know, before. And you just get to do deep dives into things and just learn about whole new areas. It's an exciting engineering challenge. And I love those. So one of the cool things about where I am now is that I'm not just working in industry. So I chose on purpose a smaller company because I really wanted to stay hands-on. And when you're a small company, 
you're going to be doing a lot more different items. And frankly, I have the attention span of a squirrel. So it's really quite well for me to be able to, you know, have my hands in several things at once. But one of the, the cool things is even though we're, you know, we're pure industry is that we have a lot of academic partners. So you get to go and just sit down, pick their brains and just learn just the most amazing things. You're like, okay, but how, how do we actually translate this into something physical? And that is actually my job. I'm really the point in between the academics thinking of new, interesting ways to do what we're trying to do. And then actually, okay, but how does that actually get accomplished in physical reality? And so it just means, you know, I just have a lot of these super brilliant PhDs on, you know, speed dial that I can just call up and, okay, let's, let's have a little chat really quick. That's one of the really the super awesome parts of this job is how much I just get to learn every day. So just back up the rover for one second. Can you tell us about quantum key distribution? Like, What, what is that <laughs> all about? <laughs> so, I mean, just to start with, it's really what is other encryption? Like, why do you need any kind of encryption? Like, obviously, we want to you know, protect sensitive data, you know, financial, health, corporate secrets, basically anything that you wouldn't be happy to just like, you know, have pasted on the on your Twitter page. If you don't want that to happen, you want it encrypted. Most of the encryption methods we have now are based on how hard it is to solve really complex math problems. And so much so that computers that we have now just can't do it. Um, but that's true of the computers we have now. So coming down the road in probably about 10 years time, we'll get to the point where quantum computers can bust those complex math problems wide open in about 10 seconds. There's already an algorithm called Shor's algorithm that shows how you would actually beat the RSA 240 you know, bit key um, in that amount of time with a quantum computer. Um, so you need a certain amount of stable qubits and we're getting there. So this is, this is not a problem we have at the moment, but we see it's happening. One of the issues is everything you have right now, okay, so it has encryption, it can't get broken into, but what you can do is you can store it. And then if you don't want it seen in 10 years, well, then it better be quantum computer proof. So how do you do that? So there's actually a lot of forward security items that you have to look at as well. So then, you know, what can basically encrypt against a quantum computer that's so much more efficient at these complex math problems? And that's where quantum actually comes back in. And that is what quantum key distribution is. It's using photons of light and they're randomly generated and in different polarization states um, for one type that's weak coherent pulse. It's the type my company's doing. There's another type called entangled photons. Both of them are photons of light and they have data encrypted in them depending on their polarization state. And then we send it from the transmitter and then a receiver receives it and is able to decode it. And why it's secure is that it has those principles of quantum mechanics of you can't clone it, you can't clone a photon, you can't measure it without showing that you measured it. So once it comes in, if there's an eavesdropper, let's say, who like grabs that piece of light and I just want to measure it and then I'll just send it over. There's a fingerprint. You get a fingerprint in there and that fingerprint comes in the error rate 
So there's a process afterwards, after the exchange of the photons, called reconciliation. And that's where you see the fingerprint of any eavesdropper. So you would see that you don't use that key. No information got lost. You know, you're golden. So that is what I'm working on is quantum key distribution, but specifically from space. And the reason why you'd want to do it from space is just distance. You can do it over fibers, like, you know, fiber optic cables, you can send it over, but they're really limited on distance. And then you'd have to have repeaters and you just get more of those errors in until you can't, you don't get any key out of it. And so those are good for citywide distribution networks, can be fiber optic. You can also do air to air, you know, basically tall building, tall building, send it over. But again, those are limited by A, line of sight, you have to see it, and B, the atmosphere. The atmosphere has will attenuate the light and it adds in errors. So you can't use it over, you know, basically longer than 500 kilometers. So what do you do if you want an actual like global solution? You have to go from space. So that's what we're looking at. So what are the applications? I think, you know, we've got listeners from all different parts of the space industry and non-space industry. They're just enthusiasts. So you're currently with Craft Prospect where you're doing this type of work. Being with a, a younger, smaller startup that obviously has to see the light at the end of the tunnel for the commercial applications of this, where do you see that going? How does it apply to the work that, that we may see in everyday life or whether it's with the government or commercial applications? Where do you see that? Yeah, so we've been doing a, a lot of work to basically identify who are the, the first you know people who are going to be taking it up. And it is the, the first quantum keys are going to be very expensive per key. You know, it's nothing like what you have right now in terms of how quick and easy just the complex math problems and simply the the development cost to get the the first ones in. So it's really going to be people who can afford the high price and that that's worth it to them. So these are going to be, you know, defense. This is government. This is financial institutions. And then a long time, basically, As we get more of these satellites up, as the infrastructure builds up, as they become more commodified and you're launching constantly, you're developing the ground infrastructure so you're not having to do a bespoke unit for every new area you want to go to, the price comes down and it would start filtering into more everyday items. So yeah, right now though, the price per key, it's going to keep it out of the reach of just being able to use it to encrypt those WhatsApp messages. But it sounds like to me, this is the foundation of going back to Star Trek, things like transporters. Like, I definitely don't want anybody eavesdropping on my atoms as I'm getting transported across space. You know, like, I can never think of the transporter one, though, as much as I love Star Trek without thinking of the movie The Fly. That scarred me as a child. Exactly. Yes. Now you're talking the... All of you born in the 1990s will not know this movie, but please proceed for the rest of us. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, and like, and don't watch it unless you wish to be scarred. <laughs> but it's a great movie, just, you know, oh, oh, transportation. But yeah, I mean, the big thing is that we we want our data protected and, and frankly, we want it secured going forward. So it's one of the, the cool items that we're looking at is that QKD, that's quantum key distribution, you can just abbreviate it, is looking to be one of the solutions, you know, going forward that there are some you know, post-quantum cryptography items, but the problem is, is that they're not provably secure. QKD is provably secure, so you have forward security. 
So basically, there's never going to be an algorithm on a quantum computer that can decode it, that can brute force attack it. There is nothing there. Now, for some of these other types of cryptographies, we we don't have an algorithm yet, but they're not provably secure. So that just means, well, there might be an algorithm in the future, just like Shor's algorithm has you know, come up. And there's a couple of others for other types of encryption. And so basically, that's going to be an arms race is to how quickly can you break the different encryptions that are coming online? But with quantum key distribution, you're not going to be able to. So that's one of the big pushes for it. Because right now, the only country that has demonstrated quantum key distribution from space is China. And they did that with their Mycius uh, satellite. And that's, you know, basically some other, you know, a whole bunch of other countries around the world are now trying to catch up. They are the leader in quantum key distribution from space at the moment. And so what's the the plan? You've got the ROCKS CubeSat mission. And as I understand it, that is a, a 6U CubeSat. And how many of those do you plan on putting up? And I'm assuming since you're trying to avoid the problem of atmospheric interference, uh, what altitude, how many, what are the specifics on the mission that you can talk about? The first ROCKS is our demonstration mission. So it is one of just one of them going up. It's just to prove out the whole concept of being able to do it on a CubeSat. Because like I said, the Mycius one, that's the only QKD one that's actually gone up. That was not a CubeSat. That was a rather large satellite, more traditional sized. So we're trying to show it that you can do it on these small ones so that you would be able to get this constellation up pretty quickly and just be able to you know, augment any sort of QKD service quickly. You know, as demand rises up, you'd be able to get them up and, and going because the CubeSat development cycle is just so much shorter than, than traditional satellites. And there are some companies who are doing larger satellites as well as some kind of in between. So there's a mission that we're actually working with right now in Canada with the universities of, of Waterloo and Calgary and the Canadian Space Agency's mission called TSAT. And so that's a quantum key distribution satellite as well. And it's actually super interesting because we're trying two different protocols of QKD. So one with entangled photons, where it's from the ground to the satellite, and then we're putting our hardware onto it. And so that's from the satellite to the ground, trying it both, basically. More research per satellite. But that's a that's a small set, so that's not a nanosatellite. So, so this isn't like when I had to buy Blu-ray and DVD, right? <laughs> That's for the people from the the early 2000s. Soon we'll get to the next decade, but... (laughs) (laughs) We're getting there slowly but surely. I mean, one of the best things about this community, of the QKD community, is, you know, it's not that large. So we're basically well aware of all the different programs going on. So, I mean, really the aim is that on the consumer level, anybody who uses it sees no difference. You know, they just get a quantum key and everything's exciting. And so lots of this is actually going on with, with collaboration across countries. But yeah, so part of our roadmap is really is some of the hardware. So it's a quantum source module that we're sending over to Canada to, to get integrated onto that one. And then that one launches, I think, I think about the same time as our ROCKS satellite. And so ROCKS, is, like I said, is a much smaller one. It's 6U. And it's not only doing... QKD, but it's also showing some of our autonomy. 
So basically, we're trying to put more of the operations on board the satellite. And so that way, it can actually choose its locations. And, and the reason why we're choosing to, to showcase it on this one is right now, QKD, you know, basically, you have an issue with clouds. The line of sight doesn't go away just because you're in space and you're coming down, you know, looking down at the earth is you can get something in between. And if there is a cloud, you can't actually make contact with your ground station. And so what we envision is once there's actually a full network of ground stations is that you can choose, you being the satellite can choose on the fly which one to go to. And so it has an imaging system that looks ahead um, it has some machine learning on it, basically, so that we can identify clouds. And if it identifies clouds over a chosen target, it goes to a different target, you know, and points points that way. So there's actually a couple of exciting technologies kind of all getting put onto, onto one. And then after that one, the idea is to develop a constellation. So once we prove out the technology, we show that we can not only our ground stations, but we're looking at some of our partners' ground stations to be able to make sure that it's, you know, fully functional. If you really want a global distribution network, you need to work with your partners. You need to work with the established consortiums doing that in the different countries. And so once we have that demonstration mission, we want to make a constellation. I love to see the business case behind everything in new space, because one of the things I've been in constant awe of is how many ways there are to develop a business in new space around so many different technologies. And the way that you're addressing this technology, just the financial sector alone could be an addressable market like we've not seen in the new space economy. And I think that's that's just amazing. And if we start to look at all of the other technologies that are making it into this space as well with traceability like blockchain and with your work in encryption, the impact that this could have on the commercial market, I think is incredible. And, and I'm so glad that you were able to enlighten us and the rest of the, the market on this type of encryption. It's super exciting because you see this problem on the horizon and you're able to fix it. You know, you're like, oh, we, we have something and we just have to get started now. So it's in place. And, you know, that kind of like problem solving is, is really what appeals to me. You know, that was that was the big part. It was like, oh, this is an actual problem to solve. Let's go figure it out. That's the exciting parts of, of how I kind of choose what to work on. And, you know, there's this one step, though, that I see as we talk with you, and we see a lot of talent out there coming from institutions like JPL, where incredibly talented engineers and scientists make the leap from the governmental and institutional side into the commercial and new space sector. And you suddenly have one step to the problem that you never had before. You have to make money with it. And you can't do it for the pure science of it and for the pure enjoyment. It has to solve a real problem that turns into capital further down the road. And what would you say to those out there as our final question with you today? What would you say to those people that have come through the path that you have of first through the grandfather of space with, with JPL into something as new and exciting as we see today as, as new space and making that leap from institutional science and engineering to where budgets are massive and it's for the learning and educational and the experience of developing the science for, for its own sake and discovery 
to this commercial space? What, what would you say to those people? One of the, the cool parts is that the choices outside of the, the government sector are also exciting in ways of, you know, the, the innovation, the, the one-offs. It was one of the things that I kind of feared going through university and, you know, you basically, you get the, I don't want to say school trips, but, you know, like, you know, they, they took us to, to the old giants, you know, the Boeings, the Lockheeds, and they do have some, you know, lots of interesting things going on. But for the most part, it's a very set development. Like, again, they're making money, but they're making money in a very different way. You know, whereas that's what excited me about JPL is you are doing one-offs, but it's all exciting, you know, super one-offs. You get to really change the paradigm every time you're building something. It's it's not anything that it's just, oh, well, just change it a bit and then, you know, sell the new version. And that was like the super exciting part about it. And I think a big thing that's come up with all these new space ones is that they're doing that same thing of, of basically when they're starting, they're doing something that hasn't been done before. They're, they're starting up from scratch. They're having to build up the systems, but it doesn't mean that, you know, you don't want systems in place. And so one of the big things is going into, into these new space companies with that experience only helps you. So I've not really found that it, that there was any sort of hindrance of like, oh, but no, this isn't the way we do things. We have to, you know, follow the book. It's being able to be flexible with that, you know, take it to the to the new company and use your experience of developing from these places that have so much heritage behind them, you know, JPL or any of these really these the old aerospace companies have a lot of heritage and they continue to use that because it works, you know, and you're able to take that and use those lessons learned for something new and exciting. So I think one of the the really cool parts is that you don't lose the wonder. You do have to focus on the commercial aspects, which which has been interesting for me because I didn't have to really do that even at Hyperloop. But that was because they were basically had so much money, they were able to just throw money and and get business development people and get all of that. And you didn't have to do anything in that part. And I know that's not been, that's not as common with new space where you're an engineer but you're also a salesperson. You also have to look at, you know, the budgets. You also have to make sure that you're being cost-effective with what you're trying to do. And so it's it's both interesting, but it also gives you a new type of challenge for it. And I don't think that any of the lessons from the heritage ones, you know, are wasted in, in bringing them over to the new space. So, yeah, I don't, I, I don't think that there's, it doesn't feel as big of a leap, except for the fact that you're probably involved in a lot more parts of a project than you would ever be at a giant place. You know, you have to, there's just, there's no possibility for a new space company to have just one person doing only one job. So you get a whole breadth of experience. And so that's probably the biggest change in jumping over to new space. That was a great answer. I mean, I think, I think you nailed it in that each one presents its own set of challenges from different perspectives and aspects. And it's, it's just a matter of what interests you as a person, as an engineer, as a business person, whatever the case may be the most at that given time in your life. And uh, each is, each has its positives and negatives. Yeah. And I think that's one of the big things is that, you know, you're not stuck with any choice you make really. 
you know, that's that's really the cool thing about the sector is that there is such a variety of companies and a variety of companies like in terms of size, but also in terms of like what problems they're trying to solve. So you can really find something that like speaks to you and you're like, that problem looks interesting. That's the problem I want to go and tackle. And, and you can, you know, go and actually really get in there and, and make a difference. And that's really the most exciting part about the space industry is its variety. One of the things that I'm I'm hoping that is happening in the industry today, and I start to see it, is that industry from the commercial standpoint, we're seeing a great infusion of talent coming from institutional space like JPL and bringing so much expertise to that commercial part. But what I'm also seeing is there is some flux back into institutional space from the commercial side that lends itself to agility and new ways of thinking about how we can get there faster in a world where quality matters a tremendous amount. And so I love seeing people like you moving back and forth seamlessly between those two parts of the business because we all benefit from it. Yeah. And I really think basically also bringing in academia into it, you know, because for, for so long, they just kind of go on their own path, but there's so much good research there and, and they do need the industry's help to really push it out. But yeah, I totally agree because, you know, even JPL, like they, lots of heritage, you know, set ways of doing things, but they're not against trying new things. You know, some of the innovations there, like TMX, that can go and, you know, basically it's it's almost like a, a brainstorm version of systems planning for, for a mission where you just get the experts in for, you know, a couple of days and you lead a session, a design session, and that kind of agility of like, hey, let's just turn it out. Like that play with between that, that have to be the, the agile commercial planners, you know, with the government ones, I think both really do benefit from it. I agree. Before you jump, I got to know, it's not like Intel inside on your satellites. Like what, what powers all this? The quantum portions? Okay, like literally the quantum, the pulses, like so we're doing, it's called weak coherent pulse, but really they're laser diodes and they just have to be modulated super quickly. And there's a lot of optics in front of it that change the polarization state. So most of the quantum stuff, it's it's lasers. And yeah, obviously with the 60 cubes that you're like, oh, we have to use very little power, but that's been, yeah, we're, we're good on that one. The Keysat one, they're, they're power constrained, but we've, we've figured out a way around it. Cassandra, this has been amazing having you on the show. We've really enjoyed our time and I think we've learned a ton. Before you go, where can someone go if they're wanting to learn more about the projects that you're working on at Craft Prospect? Where do they go to learn more about the work that you're doing? Yeah, you know, if they want to learn more, I mean, we have our website, craftprospect.com, but really you can also send me a, a LinkedIn message and have a have a pretty unique name so it's it's easy to find me and I will respond. Be careful because you know we're worldwide. You're going to get so many LinkedIn messages that you you can't answer all of them. But you know, that's fine. I love I love talking to people about the things I'm excited about. So, you know, if if you want to learn more, you know, send me a message on LinkedIn and and we can have a conversation. It would be totally exciting. Everyone, Cassandra Mercury. Thank you. That was great having Cassandra on. Lots of interesting work that she's been doing. Everything from 
from working at JPL to Hyperloop to Craft Prospect. I think that the work that she's doing was so interesting. And you know, it just has so many different applications. And we see these different businesses starting up that they're very vertically aligned to just a couple of niche industries, but everything from financial institutions to defense and intelligence. And the vocabulary, like her her vocabulary, quibits and quantum key distribution. I mean, these are fantastic words. But it really was, I mean, her passion just and like Clint, you mentioned going through all the different projects that were completely separate from each other, but moving to one and just having that joy and that excitement for it, you really can just feed off of it. It's great. I think it goes to show like in school, you think I'm going to take these courses and I'm going to be in this career and I'm going to do this one thing. I think it just goes to show that whatever your background is and whatever your talents are, you can apply them just across so many applications. It's looking at it holistically and and just whatever you want to do, whatever interests you, go for it. It's one of the interesting things about new space as well, just how quick technology is growing and the different solutions and thoughts and ideas that people have that you can you can actually make real. Listening to her description of her interview and how she ended up at JPL in the line that she was working in. And it was funny. It reminded me of, do you remember that that movie with Steve Carell, 40-year-old virgin? And he says, ah, Kelly Clarkson. And she says, parachutes. And now <laughs> see where she is today. It's just, <laughs> I'm so worried about where my career trajectory is today and what of those things could have influenced that I did over my life. But when I, when I heard that, that was so funny. But this has truly been an amazing episode. And I'm glad that we had Cassandra on today. And if you want to learn any more about the work that Cassandra is doing, as she said, find her on LinkedIn, Cassandra Mercury, or go to the website for craftprospect.com. Thanks for joining Space in 60 today. See you next time. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Space in 60. Stay tuned as we explore new journeys into space with our upcoming guests and talk about the evolution of the industry. Be sure to subscribe to the show so you don't miss any new episodes. And we would love your input and feedback. So send us your comments and questions, and we'll try to feature them in a future podcast. We'll catch you on the next episode of Space in 60, where new space speaks. Space in 60.